When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, that's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for nearly the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, Derek Lewis pretty much got worn around the cage like a button by Sergei Spivak on Saturday. It was Derek Lewis's third loss in a row. It was Sergei Spivak's third win in a row. And frankly, the Black Beast was never really in this one, man. He got the opportunity to throw a couple of big strikes, neither of which did anything. But pretty much from the jump, this fight was a story of Sergei Spivak's grappling. Now, I will say in Derek Lewis's favor, he did get to do the signature Derek Lewis thing where he's down on the mat and then suddenly he just stands up. He got to do it three or four times, but only because Sergey Spivak kept taking him down so easily. Eventually, we get the finish at three minutes and five seconds into the first round on what I have to say was a lightning fast arm triangle choke from the combat Sambo G. Sergey Spivak, what'd you think here? Yeah, well, what I was going to say is, you know how sometimes we talk about these fights and say that in classic pro wrestling fashion, everybody got to do their stuff? Yeah. Derek Lewis didn't really get to do his stuff here. Yeah. The only stuff of his, you're right, that he did get to do was just get up the Derek Lewis approach to jujitsu, but it also seemed like at times... Sergey Spivak has that kind of grappling approach where if you if he looks like he's losing the ideal position he wants, he wants you to get up. He wants you to expend that energy to get back to your feet just so he can face plant you back down on the mat, especially at heavyweight and wear these fellas out, make them carry all that weight on them. And he got to do all his stuff. Derek Lewis really didn't get to do much of his stuff at all. Yeah. I wondered at first I was like, okay, did we all have a good time? Did we all get what we wanted? Derek Lewis only has a finite amount of fights left in him, and this is what we're doing with them? Okay, fine. I guess he's got to fight every Sergey on the roster. Got to go through every heavyweight until there's nobody left. But also, I was like, I was, I watched this one at my leisure yeah. on Sunday, and I was thinking about the people who stayed up till an ungodly hour here in North America, in perhaps even the one true time zone, because you just had to see this. Did, did you come away being like, okay, now at last I can rest? Or did you feel like maybe you should have waited with a cup of coffee and enjoyed this one on Sunday? Wow, Ben Folks' disgust is palpable at these bloodthirsty plebs with their, with their bread and circuses 
out here staying up late. You know, the people who stayed up late were probably felt indebted to Sergey Spivak, who went out there and got this thing done in three minutes. They were probably like, oh, <laughs> thank true. God, we didn't have to sit here and go five rounds of what undoubtedly would yeah. have been the other kind of heavyweight fight. So, See, that is true. It could have been worse. And I'm just saying, listen, you know me. You've known me for a long time. I love bread and circuses. Yeah, no, But there's don't. a time and a place. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You fill up on bread and circuses too soon before bed, it'll dis- disrupt your sleep. That's true. I know that now. That's true. Sometimes in the modern era, it is hard to know what to say about these UFC fight night main events, as many of them feel pretty random. In this case, we talked last week, I think maybe it was uh, either on the proper or the power hour over on the Patreon page that Derek Lewis was a bit of a gatekeeper to the heavyweight elite at this point. Sergey Spivak has now won three fights in a row. Uh, Derek Lewis, Augusto Sakai, and of course, UFC 272, the big TKO over Greg Hardy, the one uh, that endeared Sergey Spivak to all the good people of the world for life. Uh, is he a legit contender now? Shout out, by the way, to Michael Bisping, for absolutely forcing Sergey Spivak to say a name during his post-fight interview. Just basically put the big fella's arm behind him and twisted it until Sergey Spivak was like, fine, John Jones, I want to fight John Jones. <laughs> but uh, is Sergey Spivak, we're we going we gonna to open up the gates and let him into the, uh, to the A tier here? To the other heavyweight division, yeah, the good one, the one like where we we basically push a bookcase and it turns out to be a door, and we usher you into the nice heavyweight division. Yeah, there's I a, don't know. There's a candle on the wall. You pull down on it, and the uh, mm-hmm. the bookcase swings open. Then you you go from the room where uh, it's dark and your feet stick to the floor to one where it's like plush carpeting and mahogany furniture. I don't know if if a win. In the middle of the damn night against Derek Lewis gets you there right away. Yeah. I don't know yeah. these days. Might you? But I'll say this: it was better to have won that fight than lost it. That sounds right. That does sound right. Uh, you pull down on that candle, the door swings open, and uh, Stipe Miocic and Curtis Blades are sitting in there drinking a fine cognac, and they're like, "Would you like one? <laughs> Welcome, Mister Spivak. Could DC take your coat?" Cyril Gaon looks up from where he's just been changing the record on the phonograph player. <laughs> he said, uh, do you like jazz, my friend? Come on in. Derek Lewis not going anywhere, according to Dana White, despite the fact he's lost three in a row here. Uh, he is 37 years old. In Dana White's own words, I love that guy. He's not going anywhere, which when it comes right down to it is about the only form of job security that the UFC offers, whether or not Dana yeah. White, quote unquote, loves that guy uh, in stark contrast to a what 47 year old heavyweight who fought the same weekend, who we'll talk about coming up a little later in the show. Dana White didn't have anything nice to say about that guy at all. Here you got 37 year old Derek Lewis, who's already won retirement deep in this thing. And Dana White basically says he's he's got a job in the UFC for life. Well, by for life you mean for now because that he's not going anywhere i love that guy then we match him up against tom aspinall and he gets beat up and then we go well that's four in a row you know we like him but you gotta win one every now and then or let him talk some shit about how he's unhappy with his contract and then suddenly it'll be Derek lewis hasn't won a fight in this long so that all that stuff much like a fight card 
Subject to change. Subject to change, indeed. Reminder, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This show drops for free every Monday afternoon in your timelines and podcast libraries. If you think we're having fun right now, head on over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to join the team. Ben Folks and I are party rocking over there all week, churning out the additional MMA content. We've got the Wednesday live chat where we take your questions for a full 60 minutes. We've got Thursday's Doing the Damn Thing podcast where we take a little break and we talk about the world outside of MMA. And we've got Friday's Power Hour podcast, a full extra hour of curated MMA talk to get you excited about the weekend's action. We've got a patronage tier for every budget. Remember, patreon.com slash co-main event. Support the podcast that supports you so well, so tenderly. Keep the discourse unfettered and keep this train on the tracks. Remember, we've also got our brand new merch shop over at comainevent.com. Head over there and click the link at the top of the page that says shop that'll get you there you can get all your old favorites like the dundasso t-shirt and the old school cowboy astronaut cigarettes t-shirt you can also find a lot of cool new stuff like brand new are you fucking kidding me shirts officially licensed merchandise of the dreaded mma gods and of course the hottest seller on the market the bobby nux t-shirt go over to comainevent.com and click the link at the top of the page that says shop we're partnering with our friends at superconductor on the shop our guy johnny ashcroft he's been designing stuff stuff for the cme for a long time now we can't recommend him highly enough for all your design needs hit him up at studiosuperconductor.com or on instagram at studio superconductor we've got music this week from our guys foreign cash remember that's c-a-c-h-e an la-based production duo if you like what you hear from them on the show you can check out more of their stuff at foreigncash.bandcamp.com or soundcloud.com slash foreign cash again that's c-a-c-h-e in the word cash three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one fedor emilianenko legendary MMA career yet met yet another sad end on Saturday with yet another loss to Ryan Bader in Bellator. We'll talk Fedor's place in history and Dana White's unflinching commitment to being totally full of shit when talking about him. And in round number two, Islam versus Alex, a legitimately awesome super fight that so far isn't being promoted like one. And in round number three, Connor back. Conor McGregor will coach season 1.5 million of the Ultimate Fighter against Mystic Michael Chandler, which will give him more time to clear the USADA testing pool and perhaps let some of the never-ending legal action around him get settled via huge cash payouts and ironclad NDAs. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. This week's listener mail is once again brought to you by NordVPN. NordVPN is one of my favorite things online right now. I use it on all my devices. I know Ben does too. It's super fast and easy enough to use that even I can figure it out. NordVPN will give you peace of mind of knowing that your personal information is safe online. Whether you're using the internet at home, traveling, or just running around town, and your phone is bouncing from public Wi-Fi to public Wi-Fi. Ben, what's your favorite thing about NordVPN? Well, you know my favorite thing is how it keeps me protected on all those various public Wi-Fis that I might visit in the course of just any normal day in my life, whether I'm at Chad's CrossFit gym, jumping on their public Wi-Fi, whether I'm at the chiropractor immediately after Chad's CrossFit gym, whether I'm at the emergency room. 
Whether I'm at a personal injury law offices, doesn't matter what public Wi-Fi I get on, NordVPN has me covered. I really appreciate that. You know what? If you were down at the CrossFit gym, probably the only thing you'd be doing is checking your email. Standing there looking at your phone, I'd have to run up to you. Yeah. I'd have to run up to you and remind you that the only easy day was yesterday. Let's go. Then, Then maybe you'd get into it. I'll do a box jump, box jump and a half, then look at some memes. Yeah. Looking at the dank memes. We've been telling you about the Nord security bundle for a while. NordVPN has three easy options for how to use it. You can get the standard plan for your basic VPN needs. You can get the plus plan if you need a little something extra. And if you want to go whole hog, you can go for the big dog. You can get the complete plan, which will take care of your every need. Enjoy the leading VPN service and malware blocker. Generate and store strong passwords. Protect files in an encrypted cloud. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to NordVPN vpn.com slash co-main to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus a bonus gift. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Remember, nordvpn.com slash co-main. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Sidra Holland. You know what? Okay. This is a good question. I'm glad we got this one. Minor Seinfeld character, Sidra Holland. Not, Not surprised to hear it. Sidra Holland writes, gentlemen, in light of the complaints about UFC 284's promotion being in question and along with Fedor's last fight being on CBS and whether people outside the bubble even know, I'd like to implore you to reach past the fog of the gummies and tell me in your recent memory, let's call it the ESPN MMA era, what were some of the best promoted MMA events across the board? And if these promoters hired CME, if you nasty LLC to help promote their events, what would they look like now? This is an interesting question. We've been talking a lot in recent days, weeks, and months about how the UFC has very noticeably changed its approach to uh, how it, I guess, how it promotes these these fight night events and, and pay-per-view events. In some ways, kind of feeling like it already has it made uh, in terms of getting that guaranteed licensing money from ESPN for both the fight nights and the pay-per-views, no skin off the UFC's back, essentially, when it comes to how many people order these pay-per-views or watch, uh, the fight night events. And I think that is a little bit in contrast to what they used to do. But I think one of the things that I wanted to say to begin this conversation is that when you talk about the Endeavor era specifically, you have to realize that Endeavor has almost unlimited promotional capabilities. They've got all the money in the world. They've got all the connections in the world. And specifically, one of the promises of the Endeavor era was that they could leverage those connections to promote individual fighters. And I guess I would ask, have they? Because it doesn't yeah. it doesn't really seem like they, they have. And, you know, the UFC back in, in the... Uh, in the days, I guess, when you could say it was still marching toward mainstream acceptance, I feel like the the UFC actually used to do a fair amount to promote individual fighters and promote big fights. Like, you know, uh, Islam Mahachev mentioned it last week. They used to do the world tours for, for Conor McGregor fights. They put him out there with Conor Mag- with uh, Jose Aldo. Uh, you know, there was obviously a big world tour for the Floyd Mayweather fight, which wasn't the UFC, obviously, but, you know, the UFC had its fingers in. Uh, heck, man, they used to put in individual fighters on the side of Mickey's malt liquor cans. Remember that? Uh, they used to, the UFC used to have a hard-on for local media. 
Conor McGregor would do, go yeah. around and do so many local media spots that eventually he announced that he wasn't going to do them anymore because he had done so many of them. I know for a fact that when the UFC was trying to break into the UK market, that Ant Evans, the former UFC uh, PR guy, took Michael Bisping around personally to every major newspaper and television studio in the UK and introduced him to people so that they could meet him and see that MMA fighters weren't just a bunch of meatheads. And it kind of feels like now none of that happens. It feels like now it's all about the brand. It's all about the letters. It's all about, hey, man, we can put on any fights we want on a Saturday night, even if it's one in the morning, and y'all rubes will still watch them and talk about them on your podcast. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the world tour, the Jose Aldo Conor McGregor tour that they did, which is the first one that came to my mind when uh, minor Seinfeld character Sidra Hall had asked about you know, what are some good examples of fights that were really, really sold, got the, the, the big sell from the UFC. And yet, you, you remember what happened there, right? Well, we they, did that whole they said a bunch of shit. stuff that they, that they shouldn't have said. Well, that's you might be thinking of the, the Floyd Mayweather Conor McGregor one, but the... Uh, Conor McGregor, Jose Aldo one was where we did this whole world tour and then Jose Aldo's rib is all fucked up, right? And then Chad Mendes has to get up in there. Um, and so I think that there's there's a lot of reasons for how we got here. One of them is that the UFC kind of realizing like, we can put two guys together on a fight card. We can even get signed bout agreements. We could even get crazy and wait until we have the sound signed bout agreements before we announce it. But... That doesn't necessarily guarantee those are the two guys we're going to end up with on the cage on Saturday night. We're gonna we gotta have a fight, but doesn't we can't always control some of that stuff. And so you spend a whole bunch of money going and doing this tour stuff, and then who knows how circumstances can work against you. But you are right that not only was it sold as a benefit of the the sale to Endeavor that hey they are big in the entertainment industry, man. They got big entertainment industry con contacts. Uh, their clients are the hosts of talk shows and all kinds of other stuff that, and it was sort of offered as a justification and in, as part of the investor pitches, Hey, you know why this is a good deal? Well, for one thing, once we buy the UFC, we're going to streamline this company, AKA fire a bunch of people who do media relations and, and do PR stuff for the UFC now because we don't need them because Endeavor already has that shit taken care of. We're going to be able to get you on Stephen Colbert, going to be able to get you on late night talk shows, all that kind of stuff. And we don't need to have an entire department of employees doing that for us because we already are so plugged into the entertainment industry. And you're right that for the most part, that hasn't happened at all. And it makes me wonder if it was ever going to happen if it was just an argument for, hey, we're going to fire these people and here's how we're telling you that we don't need them and we can save the costs on them. Or if it was that we kind of realized that you don't necessarily need to do it, especially once you've taken the lumpiness out of the business, uh, as Ari Emanuel told us, where you've, you've found ways to get paid for this stuff just for putting it on, regardless of how many people watch. But also you might realize over time if you make them into a star, then you've created a negotiating problem for yourself down the road. And if you don't do that, you have less of that to worry about. They need the brand because the brand is the powerful thing. So I, I think there's some of it that's just like realizing the nature of the sport, but also some of it realizing it might be in our best interest. We're still churning out money. There's no 
reality in which the UFC wakes up Sunday morning, looks at the numbers from UFC 284 and be like, we're fucked. We really messed up by not promoting this thing harder. We're going to lose a bunch of money on this event. There's no way. That cannot happen. Yeah. It can just it's a, it's an impossibility with the way they've set up the business at this point, which is smart on their part, but also gives them less incentive to sell any one particular event. And I'm sure that, you know, fight week gets going. We'll ramp up the stuff. We'll get all the usual stuff. You get all the media people who show up in Australia to be there for this one. And they'll, they'll, they'll all combine to do their stuff. But outside of just individual fight weeks, it just seems like it's not really worth it for the UFC. And there's no major downside to not doing it. Yeah. Uh, obviously, they did say a bunch of stuff they shouldn't have said during the lead up to the Floyd Mayweather fight. But if I may correct you on a fact, uh, I just want to read you this quote from Conor McGregor during the world <laughs> tour with Jose Aldo. You looked this up just as I was talking. For him to say he's the king and I'm the joker, if this was a different time, I would invade his favela on horseback and kill well, anyone that is not fit to walk. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that was... Now, you know what? Now that you say it, Okay, yeah, I remember that one now. <laughs> Our next question this week comes to us from someone who may from be who may be from East Asia or a ghost. So that's spooky. Uh, yeah. They write, I will admit to eating less shit than your average wild man over the last few years. But I was at least aware of tough Latin America and other series that have culminated in fight night events in the past few years. Did I just overlook this Road to the UFC series, which is listed as its own promotion on Tapology and took place in Singapore and Abu Dhabi? Or did, the, or did it get any UFC promotion stateside? My question is, if these fighters were, quote, getting paid to fight in what their highlight clips in what their highlight clips make look like very much like UFC octagonal cages during their previous road to the UFC fights. Why are the UFC broadcast team continually reminding us that quote, they're fighting for a UFC contract. What is going on with the UFC in East Asia? Did they decide to compete with one FC and Ryzen? Would that be a good thing? Your discourse is appreciated. So uh, that's a number of questions actually, but <laughs> I remember when they announced the UFC's road to the UFC as of all these tournaments that they were going to have in Asia to crown these champions who would eventually become UFC mainstays. But I have to admit, if it was receiving any promotion stateside and they were talking about it, uh, you must have had to look pretty close to see it because I did not hear a word about this thing until all of a sudden we clicked on Saturday's fight night cards and you look down at the prelims and there are four road to the UFC championship fights on there, which, uh, I mean, it makes it seem like they kind of regionally targeted this thing to Asia and didn't really say much about it to us here in the United States. Yeah. And I don't know if we, how, to what extent we want to see this as competing with one championship or Ryzen, but it's definitely that we're not conceding this whole territory as this belongs to them and we don't do anything there. But I mean, I don't know a whole lot about exactly how they've set this up because, you know, much like this the, this person who may be a ghost or maybe someone from East Asia, it seemed like it mostly escaped my notice until we were showing up for the, the fight night event with them. But it kind of strikes me as that the UFC has decided one thing that we can do to grant sort of instant meaning, much like we do with Dana White's contender series, like was the promise initially of the ultimate fighter is we're going to have all these people fight. Winner gets a contract with the UFC. Yeah. And I mean, 
I guess it works if you don't think about it for too long. Like if you don't think about exactly what that means or how all these other people who seem like, uh, where do they come from when they show up with UFC contracts? It's not like it's a thing that only the elite even get the contract come through to get to fight on a UFC prelim somewhere. Um, but it does seem like, okay, we've decided this is a way to tell you these people are all competing for a thing, even if the thing is getting locked into a long-term contract kind of early on in their careers. And that it also seems like increasingly the UFC has decided like a good way to do this is to set up basically your own minor leagues like that you own, but operate sort of separately under different promoters license at times under different companies uh, with lower pay. And so you're sort of taking over that role that we used to see occupied by a lot of regional promotions. And I wonder sometimes how much of that is just like a aggressive business sense of why should there be any aspect of this sport that we don't make money from and control, but also how much of it is in, at least in some markets and some places out of necessity, because you just feel like there aren't enough regional promotions giving fighters, young fighters a chance to fight and helping develop some talent that you can then later scoop up. Yeah. Cause I know we've heard this before, but in the last 10 years or so, uh, a lot of people have talked about the decline just in the number of regional fight promotions, especially around North America and, you know, in Canada and other places too, where they, they just feel like they don't have that many, that, uh, opportunities to sort of find that talent and refine it before it gets to the big leagues. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? If the UFC is doing regional tournaments that they are only marketing to various locations, in this case, parts of Asia, I would say, good. We just finished complaining about how they don't do anything to promote their fights. If they're doing, if they're trying to do these regional tournaments and targeting the promotion to people in those regions of the world to try to increase the popularity of the sport and the company, that's something. That's something that they're doing. Good. I'm glad they're doing that. And just to specifically answer one of the questions here, I think the notion that anybody is quote unquote fighting for a UFC contract when you see them either in a UFC prelim or in a road to the UFC tournament or on Dana White's contender series or the ultimate fighter is a marketing gimmick just because I'm pretty sure that all of those people are already signed to some manner of UFC contract. And it's just a matter of whether or not the UFC releases them from those contracts or right. signs them to a different contract. Everybody who's on some manner of UFC television is already signed to the UFC. Yeah. They're signed to a contract that can be kicked in to become a UFC contract whenever the UFC wants it to. Next question this week comes to us from dark wing duck who writes, hell yeah. Aside Good from to ha- hear from him. Aside from having to live the rest of his life with the shame of slapping his wife and therefore not needing to have any actual punishment, Uh, Was Dana White's New Year's resolution to start promoting fights again? There's been a noticeable return to bald man shout times with Dana screaming at us about upcoming fights while stumbling his way through reading cue cards. Is this just a way to take the focus off the wife slapping or the sinking ratings of the actual power slap league? Or has the UFC noticed, not that they would ever tell us, that it actually needs to make an effort? Now, I think Darkwing Duck here is talking about these uh, these online videos, the social media videos that we've been seeing from Dana White. Uh, yeah, essentially since the start of the new year where he's been screaming about it, all the great fights that the UFC is going to have to offer during 2023, even the ones he can't tell us about yet, he screams about. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know what's behind this, man. Like, I don't know if it is kind of like a uh, an effort to turn the page away from all the bad press that he ha- had around slapping his wife on New Year's Eve, or if the UFC has sort of been like, hey, let's, uh, you know, maybe we do need to add a little promotional punch to some of this, and let's try to make some of these fight announcements seem like a bigger deal than maybe we have in recent times. Yeah, I think it's possible that it's more than one thing. Yeah. And that you kind of get out there in front of it and you... I think the UFC has always sort of wanted to be the media, like to be its own media uh, about the UFC as well. And so if you take over that sort of role as... Remember that used to be a huge thing Yeah, for MMA media? It used to be how people made entire livings was just fight announcement, like fight booking announcements before the UFC was ready to announce it. That would be like a market people at corner. They'll tell you what fights are being targeted for what dates and that kind of stuff before the UFC is ready to tell you. And now the UFC can sort of, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be able to take over that role if it wants more of it. It just made it, Twitter and other social media things made it so that it was less valuable from a media perspective to be that as an MMA journalist because what value is it? If I read the tweet says these two guys are fighting, then I know. I don't need to click to your website. Yeah. I also wonder when you hear, when I see hear something like including the ones I can't tell you about yet, and it's like, well, what what qualifies as ones you can't tell us about? The ones because, Dana White has thought of. Because we, how many times have we seen people uh, fight announcements before there are bout agreements signed? It would feel like those ought to be the ones you can't tell us about yet, because you don't have anything on paper yet, and this. It bugs me, especially I keep seeing it since we're headed into UFC 284. We're down there in Perth and people are like, oh, this is supposed to be the Robert Whitaker, Paulo Costa one. And Paulo Costa pulled out. Fight was canceled. And it's like, Paulo told us from the very beginning that he hadn't agreed to that fight. He told us. He said it over and over. And I know because Paulo Costa got that silly little guy energy, Chad. Yeah, no, he does. He, he, he got that SLG. And so... Uh, people were like, oh, Paulo's just being Paulo. Paulo's just messing with us. And he's just been like the entire time. He's like, I've never agreed to this fight. This is, I haven't signed anything saying I'll do this. I'm not doing this thing. And then people being like, oh, the fight was canceled. Paulo pulled out. Paulo never agreed. He yeah. told you. He yeah. told you all along. Yeah. Uh, we got a couple more here that I want to get to because I think they're good questions. So please forgive us if listener mail runs a little long this week. This one comes from Dan O. Who writes, Okay. With the constant drip, drip, drip of embarrassing stories coming out of the MMA world, like picograms of banned substances pulsing through John Jones's bloodstream, I got to thinking, did anyone ever formally apologize to Gus Johnson? You know what I'm talking about. Okay. I'm talking about that time he benignly pointed out that the sometimes crazy un that this sometimes crazy unhinged shit happens in the sport. This was in immediate response to him witnessing firsthand an in-the-cage brawl. Do you guys remember how we raked him over the coals for months for those comments? Well, it turns out, in hindsight, it's 2020, and he was pretty spot on. I just think we owe him some form of public apology or a gift basket or something. I can only speak for myself, but I would like personally to say I'm sorry for being an asshole to you. (laughs) Uh, This was, you know, this harkens back to a lost era. When it does. MMA fans were still so territorial and protective that we did not want to welcome noted play-by-play commentator Gus Johnson, who, in fairness, legitimately has his own style, and it is somewhat of an acquired taste sometimes. But now, you know, you, you, Gus Johnson is out doing NBA, NFL, all these big-time sports. It probably should have been a feather in our cap to have Gus Johnson calling these 
uh, strike force events back in the day. And uh, it is true that his one slip of the tongue where he said these things happen in MMA when uh, there was a big brawl in the middle of the cage probably got him unfairly uh, lambasted in the MMA community. Yeah, we weren't ready at the time to interact with the mainstream sports world in a in a completely normal way. We you could still argue had a, some of us still aren't ready, just <laughs> considering how things go around here. We really had a chip on our shoulders. We were happy to see MMA end up in those spots, but we also felt like you guys, uh, you know, you're the the Green Day fans who just heard about this shit, and we we've been down since day one. You know, we felt like you guys don't really know this, and you don't really and like understand or appreciate it. And you're going to show up here and pretend that you do. And we're going to be dicks about it and be like name for their albums. And th- that's what happened there is I, I do think some of it was like, he says that's this stuff happens sometimes in MMA. And it's like, well, I mean, when people g- keep a tighter rein on who can get in the cage and not then it, it doesn't really happen that much. And that's, happened way more in boxing i guess over the years where it's a harder time to keep people out of the ring and the next thing you know people are throwing chairs at madison square garden while george foreman begs them not to that kind of stuff has happened in combat sports a lot over the years and so it was like it was the adding of the in mma at the end where people went like fuck you gus <laughs> like <laughs> we're not uniquely assholes we're not uniquely barbarians like this is maybe we could say this stuff happens sometimes in fight sports where fighting is the thing we all showed up to do and therefore are kind of more ready to do at the drop of a hat than they are in other sports you know yeah i just feel like maybe in retrospect we were a little hard on gus johnson harder than that's fair to be. yes yeah. all right last question this week comes to us from deathbed larry who writes well. Do we need to talk more about Johnny Eblen? Is he, as Luke Thomas recently noted, the MMA champion whose actual skills most outpace the love he gets? And can Bellator make a legit argument that it has the number one featherweight, Pitbull, middleweight, Eblen, and light heavyweight, Nemkov, in the world right now? I'll say this, and you know I don't say this lightly, Chad, but I'm going to say it here. Uh, Yeah. That boy good. That boy good. I knew that's what you were going to say. And you know what? You're right. He is good. Johnny Eblen is good. 31 years old, has advanced to 13-0 and now. Uh, his last three wins in Bellator over John Salter, Gegard Mousasi, and Anatoly, Anatoly Tokov uh, over the weekend. You know what? He passes the eye test, man. He looks damn good when he's out there doing it, when he's fighting. Uh, I would love to see him match up against some of these other top middleweights in the world to find out where the bone is buried, but we can't really do that at this point. And the, really the only... Uh, mark you can have against him the only criticism you can make is that maybe he hasn't fought some of the the top 185 pounders from these different organizations maybe you could say he hasn't quite faced that top flight competition but he's over there in bellator beating everybody they got so yeah he gets the stamp of approval from me for now i also noted today on twitter that someone asked if johnny eblin would beat uh current ufc middleweight champion alex Pereira, and johnny eblin replied yes Okay, well, case closed then. Yeah, right. He, he says he would, so we can move on from that argument. I, I mean, I totally get, and I understand why we would dwell on. Okay, quality of competition. He hasn't faced these kind of guys, but again, 
as we've said before on this show, he can only beat the guys you give him. And if it was a situation where he's ducking people or he has losses to people who then you can use to measure him against somebody else by, uh, like, you know, transitive property, that might be one thing. But he doesn't. He'd beaten everybody you given him, and those are the only people he has an opportunity to beat. Yeah. I do think it, it's uh, unfortunate sometimes when you get into those situations where we can't tell how good you might be. People don't quite give you the love that you might deserve because they they don't appreciate the quality of the names on your resume. But that's all he can really do. And I, I don't want to hold it against anybody when, you know, they're going out there winning all the damn fights. Yeah. I just want to run down the current Bellator champions here. At bantamweight, you got young Serge, Sergio Pettis, and also an interim champion in Ralphion Stotts. At featherweight, of course, Patricio Pitbull is the champion, and AJ McKee is also on the list. At lightweight, you got Usman Nurmagomedov, who is undefeated at 16-0. At welterweight, you've got Yaroslav Amasov, who is undefeated at 26-0, with an interim champ, Logan Storley, who is 14-1. At middleweight, of course, you got Eblen. He's up there at the top. At light heavyweight, Vadim Nemkov, Corey Anderson, Ryan Bader, and Phil Davis uh, all behind him. At heavyweight, of course, you got Ryan Bader. And then your women's champions are Liz Carmouche and Chris Cyborg. So uh, that's a good collection of champs, honestly, for the most part. You know, you got some people on there, Young Surge, Ryan Bader, uh, Liz Carmouche, Chris Cyborg, people that we have seen come and go through the UFC and experience their losses. But many of those champions are very good and somewhat unknown quantities that we have no idea, you know, how they would stack up to some of this other competition. I think Bellator's got a good group of titleists right now, I have to say. Yeah, they do. The question is, can you make sure enough people realize that, see them fight, and appreciate it? Yeah. All right, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, we're going to go ahead and move on to round number one. Well, Ben, this was a sad one. Fedor Emelianenko went out there and looked every day of his 46 years in this rematch against Ryan Bader in Bellator on Saturday night. He barely threw a punch. Ryan Bader landed a series of jabs right off the bat that told you everything you needed to know about how this fight was going to go. Fedor's only hope was to make it into a wild swinging brawl, which he tried briefly to do unsuccessfully, but Bader put him on the mat and he finished it with strikes on the ground. I saw a lot of people saying this after the fight. I will go ahead and uh, co-sign it. This sport will only break your heart, man. And we saw Fedor out there at 46 years old looking like it's high time, frankly, that he rides that rocket ship in the sky back to Stario school. Well, I mean, it probably has been high time a little bit. Um, I I don't want to get on here and say I told you so about any of this, but the only thing that I could think is it didn't have to be this way. Right. We could have, if he, if Fedor would only have led us, we could have found a, uh, 
a different sort of matchup and had a different sort of time, or at least a better shot at a different sort of time to go out on. And I guess there's a range of ways to feel about that. You could feel like, you know what? Credit to the competitor that is Fedor Emelianenko. That for all the other shit that his detractors, who I assume we'll get to shortly, like to talk about him, how he didn't face the best, didn't test himself against the best. I mean, here he was at 46 years old, whatever, trying to get one back against Ryan fucking Bader for the Bellator heavyweight strap, you know? And instead of being like, Hey, what's Hong Man Choi up to? Who who can we get in here to have some uh, pride on New Year's Eve kind of fun to go out on, so that the, you know the guy gets carried off on people's shoulders rather than having to sit there all sad with his face bruised up. That would have been absolutely an option for him if he would have wanted it. And in fact, it was probably he probably had to argue harder to get the worst fight. Yeah, you know. Yeah. But that's what he wanted to do. We all said, well, I guess you've earned that. We don't know why. Uh, this is what you want, how you want to spend that capital. But he did. The predictable result happens. Nobody feels particularly great about it. Um, but at least we can tell ourselves, hopefully, maybe that's the last time we'll have to see it. I wonder if in his heart of hearts, Fedor now wishes that he had not fought Ryan Bader in his last fight. And... In some ways, it's a little bit unfair to say this in hindsight, but like almost anything would have been better than this, right? Because Fedor didn't really get anything out of it. Ryan Bader didn't really get anything out of it. It was Bellator's debut on CBS, and they had some other highlight reel knockouts on this card. So for all we know, they made a pretty good showing on CBS. But they didn't really get anything, I don't think, out of the main event. Uh, most of Fedor's American televised fights at this point have him losing. So it's it's impossible to know what, if anything, a mainstream American sporting audience thinks about Fedor Emelianenko. But like you could have made this a massive fight with some of the free agents that are out there right now. And we talked about them previously when they announced that Fedor was going to fight Ryan Bader for a second time. Can you imagine if they would have thrown the Viacom budget out the window and just said, hey, man, we're going to get Anderson Silva. And Fedor's going to fight Anderson Silva as his last fight. That legitimately would have been one of the biggest MMA fights of the year. Now, yeah. it might have been the senior tour. It might have looked like a couple of duffers driving around the golf course in their carts, getting out and hitting 150-yard drives. But it probably would have been more competitive. Like, would Anderson Silva have beaten Fedor? Maybe. Maybe this version of Fedor gets beat by Anderson Silva. But... It would have been a bigger fight, and I think it would have been more competitive. Uh, and you just come out. He could have got Josh Barnett, probably. You know, he's in attendance at this thing. Uh, so, I mean, there's there's a bunch of guys that you might have been able to go get to have a more competitive, higher-profile fight for Fedor. But I think you also got to acknowledge this is what Fedor wanted. Scott Coker obviously respects him a lot. Uh, we can say a few words about Scott Coker actually respecting the history of the sport. Yeah, uh, which is nice to see. And I think he wanted to give Fedor what he wanted. And this was it. You know, I I mentioned this on Twitter and it was actually nice to see where he has all these guys in there at the same time where you look around and is you got Dan Henderson, you got Matt Hughes, Chuck Liddell, Josh Barnett, Rampage Jackson, even Henzo Gracie's even up in there in his ripped ass jeans and whatnot, and like a, apparently an Alex Emilianenko shirt, which is weird. Um, but it did strike me how 
here you could see the legit martial arts and MMA nerd Scott Coker in effect that he really enjoyed being able to have all those guys in there, most of whom, you know, did not have a huge connection with anything that Scott Coker himself promoted and not a part of anything that he can really monetize and make money off of now. And that's been one of the things that is sort of disappointing sometimes about just being an MMA fan over the course of years is how little use it seems like we have for our own history. I think because uh, promoters don't see how they can make money off of it. And so therefore they don't see it as worth the time, but also because there's a certain amount of churn among the, the fan base. But you know, where you get people who'd be like, all right, I'm, I only started watching this shit four years ago. I don't Fedor sucked the entire time that I've been a fan of this. So I don't get the, the appeal, but it, it did warm my heart a little bit to see all those guys in there looking like just a bunch of middle-aged men, yeah. uh, but also happy to be there, happy to, to be part of the party uh, with all the old contemporaries. Uh, that that made me genuinely happy. Yeah, I wish it didn't have to be over like Fedor's living wake, but yeah. uh, still. <laughs> uh, I want to get to Dana White's comments, obviously, uh, before we turn the page here. Here is what Dana White had to say at the UFC post-fight press conference when people asked him about Fedor's retirement. I don't want to shit on the guy. He's retiring tonight and all that stuff. But... <laughs> You knew there was a butt coming yep. there somewhere, didn't you? But you guys know the deal with interviews with me. I've never thought Fedor was that. I mean, he got knocked out by middleweight Dan Henderson. I think some of the guys in this business, people liked him, so they praised him. He never got to test himself over here. I was never one of the guys that thought he was one of the greatest of all time. Now, Ben folks, if you don't think Fedor Emelianenko was the greatest MMA fighter of all time, I think that that is an argument you could have. I think if you don't think he is the greatest heavyweight of all time, that is an argument you could have. But to say Fedor Emelian Inko is not among the all-time greats is a patently fucking ridiculous thing to say. If you're going to have the conversation, he's on the list somewhere, probably in the top five. So I don't know where you get off even out here. Just being so, as I said at the top of the show, just unflinchingly full of shit when it comes to talking about this guy. I mean, you can do this to anybody. Yeah. We have talked about this before. You can do this with any single fighter's career if you really want to. Where you look at them and you'd be like, oh, I didn't think the guy was great. Who did he ever beat? And then you start listing things wrong with these people that he's beaten. You know, and mostly what you're going to end up listing when it comes to Fedor, especially Fedor in his prime, is what happened to those guys later on. Which, shit, zoom way out on anybody on the, the whole lifespan of a fight career, and that is going to be the case most often. Yeah. If, if anybody sticks with it long enough, uh, you can say, like, okay, a win over them didn't mean anything because they got bad eventually everybody gets bad eventually if they stay in this shit man that's just how it goes but when in his time in his day yeah fedor was the heavyweight and i remember even dana white can walk it back now but i remember when affliction first uh was pr trying to be a thing t-shirt guy versus dana white and that first event where he fought tim sylvia and tim sylvia had recently been the ufc heavyweight champion and Fedor went out there and fucking melted him, man. Yeah. Just ran right through him like it was nothing. And 
Dana White then afterwards I was at one of those events was like, well, okay, like Tim Sylvia that like to beat up Tim Sylvia that easily that does. I don't know if he would have said it impressed me, but that that did at least make some kind of dent on him. And it was like the UFC had this period where their heavyweight division, the top of the heavyweight division, it was just Tim Sylvia and Andre Arlovsky back and forth. Yeah. That's yeah. all it was. Yes. Over and over again. And then, as soon as both those guys got free of their contracts, Fedor beat them both in back-to-back fights. Yeah. I mean, if you consider Fedor, Fedor Emelianenko's prime to be like 2004, 2005, when he was having those fights with Krokop and Big Nog when he was already in his late 20s, you're exactly right. The UFC heavyweight division at that time was basically Tim Sylvia and Andre Arlovsky running it back a million times. And the UFC was giving heavyweight title shots to guys like Justin Eilers and Paul Buentello, right? So Fedor was over there just basically ruling over what was unquestionably the, the best heavyweight division in the world at that time. And speaking of walking it back, I would like to address for a moment the UFC's pursuit of Fedor. In about 2008 or 2009, which was the first opportunity that they really had to go after Fedor when he was already 33 years old, he had already had 32 MMA fights. Uh, Like I said, you could argue he was already a few years past his prime. But by that point, frankly, his resume in MMA was already fully secure. He had already done all that stuff in pride. And if he had walked away at that moment, he would already probably still be the greatest heavyweight of all time. And still, Dana White flew to an island to reportedly offer him four to five million dollars per fight, which at that time was kind of unprecedented. Remember, they didn't end up paying Brock Lesnar eight million dollars a fight until 2016. So they went down there, they offered Fedor four or five million dollars a fight, they offered him an immediate shot at the title and a pay-per-view headliner against Brock Lesnar, which would have been one of the biggest MMA pay-per-views of all time. So I ask you, would Dana White have done all of that stuff if he didn't think Fedor was that good? Probably yeah. not. Well, and I to to try to undercut his whole career and legacy by being like he never tested himself in the UFC. Fine, he just tested himself everywhere else. Everywhere else. You know? And when you look at some of the people who went over to the UFC and then ended up unhappy with the contracts or by the end of their careers felt like, Oh, I feel like maybe I was taken advantage of, or I was locked into a contract I couldn't get out of, or uh, that I'm in long ongoing disputes with the UFC. You can understand how somebody, even if they had full confidence in their own athletic abilities would be like, "Mm, maybe the thing stopping me from signing this contract is not fear of the heavyweights you got over there. Yeah. Maybe it's just me thinking about that's not the direction. That's not the thing I want to deal with is being locked down and beholden to you uh, in a way where it's the the leverage is tilted entirely in your favor and not at all in mine. And that would be a reasonable conclusion to come to. Yeah. And then Fedor went out. He got paid around $700,000 for his fights in Strikeforce, which if you're scoring at home is more than the UFC paid its heavyweight champion last year. Uh and then there were unconfirmed reports that Fedor made, Fedor made like $2 million a fight when he went to M1. So he ended up doing okay, I have to say. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, I have to shout out Twitter user at Probeashi, who pointed out 
They're doing a Black History Month special on ESPN right now, and it's just a bunch of fights where the black guy wins. Are you kidding me? And then our guy Vic Rodriguez also jumped on Twitter and said, look, after all the ways the UFC has flubbed this in the past, I think this is kind of genius, actually. And I just have to say, are you fucking kidding me? The UFC would think that the best way to celebrate Black History Month was to put on a special uh, recap of fights where the only thing to connect them was that a black guy won the fights. Are you fucking kidding me, dude? They would <laughs> think that, too. They would think that. Well, Jed, my are you fucking kidding me? I sent this to you. Now, I'm so glad that you're on Instagram now. It's really, I, as you can tell, I enjoy it because it gives me another avenue to send you stuff. Yeah. To no, make you, you do. watch various videos. You do as really. well. I mean, I, I hope you see it as a sign of affection. I see a, a funny eight-second clip of a guy putting money in somebody's mailbox and talking into their ring camera about how he accidentally dinged their ride, so he's going to leave them a five spot in the mailbox. And I go, you know who would find this humorous? Chad. Yeah. And so I send it to you via direct message. I sent this to you over direct okay. message because as soon as I saw it uh, from the MMA Fighting Instagram account, I went, what? This is one of those things, Chad, where it made me go like, I had to click to be like, is this the real MMA fighting Instagram account that posted this? Am I being tricked here right now? No, it's the real one. And it says breaking game bread fighter announces some massive bouts for game bread boxing four. And Chad, the first slide, I'm looking at a picture of pretty Tony Pettis. Yeah. With Roy Jones fucking junior. Yeah. I'm looking at this now for the first time since you sent it to me. They are they are all tagged in this, but this this can't be real, right? Like this That's can this thought. can this be the real fight card? Because this is nothing but hit, hitters right here. This is nothing Dude. but uh, but big swingers in the industry apparently about to go box each other at Jorge Masvidal's low rent boxing thing in Miami. It's in Milwaukee. This one is in Milwaukee, April first, Milwaukee. Anthony Pettis versus Roy Jones Jr. Uh, Jose Aldo versus Jeremy Stevens. Jacare Souza versus Vitor Belfort. This Paul Daly versus Anthony Taylor. Gina Mazzani versus Pearl Gonzalez. I mean, it sure looks real. Unless, did, did Jorge Masvidal really take the... The strategy too far in just announcing a whole bunch of bouts and being then just daring people to, to step up and and say they're scared to do it by saying I've never agreed to this or even spoken to Jorge Masvidal about it because if I would love it honestly if he did that but I don't know man are you fucking kidding me Jorge Masvidal did he put together a boxing card that I'm gonna have to watch I mean I. <laughs> I refuse to believe it. I refuse to believe that this is all these fighters are tagged in this post. So it seems real, but I, I refuse to believe it until, and until I see it. I don't know if you, and if you look at the comments, I mean, here's one from Pearl Gonzalez's verified account that just says, Hey, let's go hands up emoji, fire emoji, clapping emoji. And then later on down the thread, Tiago Alves just says, sign me up at game bread fighter. This emoji. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two.
Well, Chad, this weekend, Perth, Australia, the RAC Arena. I hope that's how it's supposed to be pronounced and not Rack Arena. Uh, it's going down. Featherweight champion Alexander Volkanovsky moving up in weight to take on... What's that guy's uh, name? With hmm. the beard. Yeah. Not not Habib, but no, kind of no, like no. Habib. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like It'll Habib's come to me. brother. Uh, okay. Oh, I swear, as soon as I'm walking out of here, it's going to come to me. Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. That guy. You know the guy I'm talking about. Yeah. Mm. Oh. Now, for anybody out there who disagrees uh, with us when we talk about how Dana White has not done a great job promoting fights recently, what's up now? What is up now that he cannot remember the name of his own lightweight champion while he's sitting on the die talking to reporters at the post-fight press conference? Islam Mahachev. That's it, Islam Mahachev. The champion has a name, and it is Islam Mahachev. And yet, here we are when we're sitting here and you're looking at what this fight actually represents. As we kind of talked about last week in one of our Patreon properties, you just look, take an honest look at what we have here. This is the year of the super fight type shit that we wanted for years and years, where you get two guys in their primes, it seems, uh, a guy moving up in weight to take on the champion at the weight class higher, and it's the rare MMA fight of this kind that seems like it's happening kind of exactly when it's supposed to, not past its expiration date, not rushed into existence. Right here when both these guys seem good as hell. Yeah. And is just a compelling fight in a lot of ways because you look at just like the size disparity, which would be the case uh, you would assume in any case where a guy's moving up in weight, but is even more the case with Alexander Volkanovsky, who always seemed to us too short even for featherweight. He's going to go up there at lightweight, fight a bigger champion, and a, a champion who really knows how to use that weight and that size advantage, you would think. Letting Islam Mahachev go in there and do Islam Mahachev stuff to smaller people seems borderline unfair. <laughs> and yet, haven't we all learned some painful lessons about underestimating Alexander Volkanovsky by now? Yeah. Haven't we all made the mistake at least once or twice in some of these fights by thinking like, well, I don't know this little shrimp-ass motherfucker. He's nice and all, and he's good, but he's, he's too small, and he's eventually going to get exposed out there. And so you feel like you want to do it again here, but then you remember all the times you've been wrong about it in the past. Yeah, and what if uh, rugby body... Alexander Volkanovsky <laughs> shows up, right? This is a guy who used to be a heavyweight, used to be a lightweight during his uh, professional MMA career. So uh, he's going to be outsized, obviously, by Islam Mahachev. But this is a guy who I w- would wager is used to fighting and defeating bigger guys. Now, whether or not that can you know, be the best game plan against Islam Mahachev, we don't know. But you would have two guys the featherweight champion and the lightweight champion who are both basically undefeated in recent memory. Islam Mahachev has not lost since 2015. Alexander Volkanovsky has not lost since 2013. They are the number one and number two ranked pound for pound fighters in the UFC, according to the company's official rankings. And last week, like we talked about on the power hour here, you have Islam Mahachev coming out saying, I don't feel like the UFC is promoting this fight enough, which 
It's starting to seem like the theme of this week's episode. But here you have Mahachev basically saying this is a super fight. They should promote it like one. Why aren't we doing a world tour? Why aren't we getting all the shine? It feels like this event is a little bit of an afterthought. And he said all that stuff before Dana White could not remember his name on Saturday night at the press conference. Yeah. I mean, I do think once we get into the swing of fight week, and especially uh, I've already seen on social media where, you know, MMA reporters going to post how terrible it is to spend 13 hours in a plane trying to get to Perth, Australia. But once they get on the ground and they get into the regular fight week routines, they're going to start churning out the stuff. And I expect that that anticipation will build a little bit. I do wonder, though, how it goes up against something like the Super Bowl. Because when I've been talking to colleagues I work with in the uh, sports betting industry this week, uh, there's a lot of, oh, shit, yeah, there is a UFC uh, pay-per-view this weekend, isn't there? It's hard to just be heard in the cacophony of Super Bowl media coverage in the United States of America. It, yeah. And I, I don't know. We, we've we seen before the UFC go back and forth and try different strategies about do you want to go all in trying to promote big cards the Saturday night before the Super Bowl. And the UFC used to do it in Vegas. And I remember like the, the George St. Pierre, BJ Penn rematch when BJ Penn insisted on going up in weight to fight for George St. Pierre's uh, welterweight title. That was like a Saturday night uh, before the Super Bowl kind of event in Las Vegas. And I don't know, uh, maybe if you're going to do it, the place to do it is Australia somewhere else where they're not totally gripped by Super Bowl fever. Uh, But I'll be interested to see how that affects things. Yeah. Super Bowl weekend used to be, historically one of the big weekends on the UFC calendar, but it remains to be seen if that holds true in 2023 when the Super Bowl just seems bigger than ever and the UFC's promotional efforts are a little bit under the radar these days. At the moment, you got Alexander Volkanovsky going off at plus 310 and Islam Mahachev going off at minus 380. So the odds makers really like Mahachev here. I guess the question I would ask you, Ben Folks, Put your uh, put your corner man hat on. Put your put your coach whistle around your neck. What does Alexander Volkanovsky do in this fight? Um, well, I think we got to get through the first couple rounds. I think we we need to wear this guy out a little bit. Okay, and um, we need to well to, for one thing to stop him from doing his usual stuff. Uh, I've I've been really interested in seeing some of Alexander Volkanovsky's. Uh, interviews where he talks about his preparation for this for putting on the extra weight and how he always felt like he was strong for his size and everything and that strength and power was never an issue but he put on this extra weight and now he feels stronger than ever and that his training partners are really feeling it and that every single training session has been designed to deal with some aspect of Islam Mahachev's game and, and what he wants to do to Islam Mahachev in this fight but I would think if we can hear the words round three and we're not bleeding out of several new holes in our face, Alexander Volkanovsky should feel like, okay, this is going all right. I, I think that you, you got to get through some of the, especially Islam Mahachev could be a kind of a fast starter. You got to get through, through some of that early stuff with him. And you also, you just got to get him to try a couple things that he's not able to do to you. Like puncture that sort of feeling of inevitability that he seems to bring into some of these fights and that we've seen a lot of those young champions where everything has been successful for them. They 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 sort of get that feeling of like, well, hey, if I go for a takedown, I'm going to get a takedown. If I want to clinch him against the fence, I'm going to clinch him against the fence. See if you can puncture that a little bit by getting a 
letting him try to do a couple things that he can't do to you. And then let him find out that maybe Alexander Volkanovsky is bringing something different to this fight. But I, I do think if you're going to win it as Volkanovsky, you're going to have to win it late, either by a decision or you're going to have to wear him down and finish him late. I don't think we should go in there plan on getting this guy out of there in the first round. So if you are Volkanovsky's people, are you telling him, look, man, we are probably going to have to spend some time on the ground in the first 10 minutes and our mission is just to survive it? Well, we def- you definitely can't go into a fight with a guy like Islam Mahachev by being like, listen, we can't get taken down. You need to go in there by being like, what we can't do is stay down. We're gonna get, we might get taken down, might not. It'd be great if we don't get taken down, but we might get taken down at some point. The key is we're going to get back up without giving them our back, without giving up any opportunities, uh, and we're not going to get discouraged if he gets a takedown here or there. That's not the end of things. Really, what, you know what I'm saying? As the, the corner man in Volkanovsky's camp, pack a lunch. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Pack a lunch. We're putting in some work. We're going to clock in. We're going to put in 25 hard minutes of work. I would take a page out of Chell Sonnen's playbook by being like, listen, they give us 25 minutes to work. I want you to use all 25 minutes, Alex. I want to see you on TV for as long as possible on Saturday night. Let's get all that camera time we can, yeah. and let's make him work for this shit. Yeah. Uh, this seems like a never-stop-moving do your best to stay inside the black octagon, inside the cage type situation if you are Alexander Volkanovsky. Uh, Habib won't be there, right? In Mahachev's corner. I thought I saw that publicized because he has taken a step back from coaching. I don't know how that may or may not affect Mahachev, but that is definitely an undercurrent of this fight. Alexander Volkanovsky has already come out and said he don't want to hear no excuses after he wins this thing, but uh, it'll be interesting, man. Odds odds are very lopsided, so we will see what happens in this. You might want to, I mean, I don't necessarily know if he's going to win, but if you got 20 extra dollars you never want to see again, you could do a lot worse than plus 300 odds on Alexander Volkanovsky. You ain't never seeing that number again in your life. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say, is if Alexander Volkanovsky does roll up in here as a 3-to-1 underdog, and win a second UFC title in a second division. I wish a motherfucker would try to then turn around and tell me it was only because Habib wasn't in the corner <laughs> coaching Islam Mahachev. I mean, yeah. there's people in the MMA discourse who will say some stupid shit from time to time, but I don't know if anybody would say some shit that stupid. Like, yeah. oh, if only Habib had been there to give instructions to, to Islam that would have been a completely different... No, if this man, as a three-to-one dog, gets it done, everybody got to stow that shit. No yeah. one wants to hear it. All right, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, as I said at the top of the show, Conor McGregor is back. The UFC announced this week it'll be Conor McGregor and Michael Chandler coaching opposite each other on the Ultimate Fighter season, I believe it's 31, if I'm not mistaken. Thousand? Uh, 30, yes, 31,000. A lot to unpack about this announcement, of course, uh, comes perhaps 
not coincidentally on the heels, immediately on the heels of some very bad potential news for Conor McGregor overseas, where a woman had to literally jump out of her, his yacht and swim across the sea to the Coast Guard to allegedly avoid a physical attack from Conor McGregor. Uh, but here we are. We're going to put him on tough. We're going to put Michael Chandler on tough. Before we get into the ultimate fighter stuff and the ins and outs of that, I guess the question I wanted to ask you for starters is, is Michael Chandler a good fight for Conor McGregor or a bad fight for Conor McGregor? Well, I'll say I understand the thinking behind this fight and the move to do it in pairing with the tough reality series. It makes some sense to me. Because I especially think that if you're Conor McGregor, you know you gotta fight somebody with a name, right? Because you're Conor McGregor at this point. You can't just go out here and be like, give me some chump. Plus, you happen to fight across the spectrum of divisions where there's a whole bunch of talented guys there and that's why everybody wants to fight you uh, is because they've seen where the line is trending and they think that they can beat you. Uh, I, I could see how he'd look at Michael Chandler and be like, well, for one thing, he's desperate enough for the fight that if I tell him, follow me up to welterweight because I've been on that good, good, and I can't make 155, he's going to do it. Michael Chandler will, will, will not even think twice about that. He'll be like, fine, we'll fight at welterweight. And you go, here's a guy where maybe some of the beatings have piled up a little bit on him. And, you know, he still is clearly a good fighter and could do some stuff, but... Uh, a guy who you you could maybe catch him early with that left hand. And uh, maybe you end up looking really good in that fight. I mean, you could also fuck around and Michael Chandler could just wear you down and you end up looking really bad if you're not prepared for it. But I could see how he looks at it and says, this is a winnable fight for me and against somebody who has enough of a name that it seems worthwhile. Plus, as we talked about before, a lot of bad Conor McGregor headlines lately. Yeah, You could do a lot worse than to get on the reality series, uh, play the role of uh, coach and mentor to these young fellas. If you manage to get a little help from the editors, maybe come off as somebody who actually cares about helping the next generation achieve their dreams, all that sort of stuff. People go, oh, what a good guy cares about his fighters and is going to help them be successful in this sport while you also are buying yourself some time to get back in that USADA testing pool so that you actually can fight by the time the thing is up. Yeah. One thing I know for sure, Michael Chandler is going to let everybody do their stuff because we know exactly what he is going to do in a fight against Conor McGregor. I guess the reason that I asked the original question is it does seem like Conor McGregor will have his chances to, to hit Michael Chandler in his jaw with the left hand, especially early. Michael Chandler only one in three in his last four. So there's that. He's 36 years old. Maybe you think he seems a little vulnerable. But Michael Chandler has been out doing it with these beasts, Ben, folks. He's been doing it with the dogs these last few years. He's been out here, as Nick Diaz would say, fighting them hitters, fighting Dustin Poirier, Tony Ferguson, Justin Gaethje, and Charles Oliveira in his last four fights. Conor McGregor, as far as we know, ain't been doing shit. He's been he's been swinging a lot of kettlebells. If you look at the physique He's been doing a lot of lat pull downs. He's Mm -hmm. been doing a lot of military press. He's been doing a lot of push-ups, been doing a lot of deadlifts, been doing a lot of curls for the girls. But has he been in the gym? Has he been pushing himself? Has he been getting ready for his MMA comeback? I don't know, man. And that's the thing that worries me. Is Conor McGregor going to be able to jump back into, you know, the shark pit 
of everybody who wants to fight him here, regardless of what division he's going to fight at, and still look like he can compete with these guys who are out there at least running with the dogs at the top of the division. Now, I agree with you. It makes some sense to do it on the Ultimate Fighter because, you know, uh, you can put some distance between yourself and this bad news. And as of this week, Conor McGregor, as you said, still not in the USADA pool. So if he jumped in tomorrow and we played it by the letter of the law, we couldn't have this fight till August, which I guess brings up the question of whether or not this thing even fucking happens to begin with. But we'll see. We'll see how they go. One of the other things I think, perhaps in a way that the UFC has not planned for yet, are we as viewers, if we watch even one second of The Ultimate Fighter, are we going to get an opportunity to peer inside the noggin of Conor McGregor here and see where his head is at? Perhaps in a way that... We're not reckoning with yet for the UFC. Are we going to get the chance to look in here and be like, oh, this guy's a mess? Or is the other side of the coin true? Will Conor McGregor come off off like a million bucks on this show? Uh, I mean, we've talked in the past about how sometimes the problem with us getting to know you better via the vehicle that is the ultimate fighter is that we find out we don't like you after all. Even when we thought we did, Matt Hughes yeah. is a great example. When he was a coach on Tough, it, it seemed like it hurt his image among fans more than it helped. But it can also play the other way. I mean, some of it is going to be editing, editing decisions that the UFC could make where if Conor McGregor seems like he's coming off poorly, you could just leave those on the cutting room floor. But some of it has to be a little bit more of an intentional uh, attempt on his part to to try not to be that way. I mean... The things I wonder is, for one thing, you know, you mentioned being in the gym, living that life. Well, here's an opportunity to kind of do it if you really, if you want that, if you want to embrace that opportunity is to get some coaches around you to get in there in the gym with these young guys and maybe then not be so surprised when you get kicked in your calf for the first time. And uh, (laughs) uh, maybe like, because I do really think that. When you saw his pair of fights with Dustin Poirier, that was one thing that you kind of saw is that Dustin Poirier, is, he's, he's spending his time at American Top Team. He is got his ear to the ground and is abreast of the developments in the MMA game. And if you are just surrounding yourself with a team that only assembles when you call for it and is only there to, protect, to prepare you for a fight, maybe you don't get that same view of the sport uh, and some of its ongoing evolutions but here's an opportunity to kind of get back in that mix if that's what you are willing to do the other part of it is are we going to do this thing where Conor McGregor has to post up in a like a Vegas mansion uh, that he rents for the entire thing and if so is it just a countdown to a headline about Conor McGregor questioned or detained by Las Vegas Metro Police after late night incident at a casino? Because we know already the man can't go on vacation anywhere near Europe, even if it's just in the waters surrounding Europe, without having something like this happen. Can he go to Las Vegas with his fight camp homies and have it be a different situation? Yeah, well, we know he'll be comfortably ensconced wherever it happens to be. Uh, I think it will be. You don't very... think he'd be living in the back of the gym? Like he'd be just be like, "Hey, can I just put a cot back yeah. here in the back of the Ultimate Fighter gym?" I mean, if I were Conor McGregor, I might do that just uh, just to see how it would play on t- just to see how it would play on TV. Uh, I do. I wonder how he's gonna try to make himself come off in this. Now, as you mentioned, if you're the UFC editors and you get half a chance, you probably take the coke binges out and whatnot, make Conor McGregor <laughs> look like a million bucks if you can do it. Uh, 
but I, you know, does it serve you if you're Conor McGregor to come into this thing throwing money up in the way up in the air and wearing your fuck you coat? Or like, do you try to be a vision of the Conor McGregor that we kind of liked the first time around before we start found out you were going to punch a 50 year old man in a bar and leave a trail of sexual assault allegations wherever you happen to be? No, you need to come in this thing as like Conor McGregor, the hardened MMA mentor who has seen it all from the root to the fruit in the MMA business and is here to give you the benefit of his wisdom and perspective, but is also going to get on the mats and mix it up with you. Like you need to be part Rocky, part Mickey in this one. You know, you you don't need to be out there doing the uh, fuck you pinstripes and throwing money at people. Yeah. Although then, maybe maybe take the guys out for a nice dinner, like spend the money in that way if you must. And then in the middle of the season, be like, and now here's my friend Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited for the coaches challenge. They still do that. They still do the coaches challenge. I haven't watched tough in about 10 years, so I don't you're know. asking the wrong fella. All right, let's do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, we talked pretty much entirely about Conor McGregor when it comes to how this whole tough coaching gig thing is going to go. But I would like to draw your attention to Michael Chandler. Uh, I believe he was on the Fortnite today, uh, the MMA Hour with Ariel Hawani. I came across this via a tweet from Hannah Rose on Twitter, Mrs. MMA Casual, at Mrs. MMA Casual, who writes, Chandler already coming at us with the inspirational one-liners, referring to his loss to Dustin Poirier and whether he thought it would affect his chances at the McGregor fight. He said, quote, if a bad thing happens, but a good thing comes from it, was it really a bad thing? Mm. So, Chad, I'm just saying, prepare yourself. <laughs> because Michael Chandler, as tough coach, is going to be just the human embodiment of one of those inspirational Instagram pages that has a lot of uh, just pictures of like a beachscape or something, and then a quote attributed to Anonymous uh, about how if you're going through hell, keep going, and all kinds of other inspirational lift-you-up kind of stuff that could also work as a cross-stitch on your grandma's bathroom wall. It's going to be that with cauliflower ear for the entire season. (laughs) Get ready. I'm just saying. Just saying. Yeah, I can't wait for Michael. The only easy day was yesterday. If you're not the lead dog, the scenery never changes. Chandler to show up here and just start dropping pearls of wisdom all over the ultimate Mm -hmm. fighter. He who he, he he who does not get knocked down can never rise up, Chad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if the man in the arena makes an appearance. We'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, well, man, this week, I'm just saying from what I watched of the UFC fight night over the weekend, it seemed like to absolutely nobody's surprise, Laura Senko afforded herself nicely over there in the broadcast booth. So we're already way over time. I'm going to keep it short and sweet. I'm just saying put her in the usual rotation. For God's sake, let this woman shine where she deserves to shine. We don't we don't always need it to be D.C., Michael Bisping and uh, Dom Cruz sitting over there, although she seemed actually to pair nicely with Michael Ch- or with uh, Michael Bisping uh, over in the broadcast booth. So uh, let's give Laura Sanko a spot in the rotation. She deserves it. Just saying. You said maybe we give her a job that doesn't entail work in the graveyard shift. Yeah, let's let her do one at a normal time, normal yeah. time for a UFC Apex event. Just saying. All right. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, We'll be over on the Patreon page all week with Wednesday's live chat, Thursday doing the damn thing and Friday's power hour. Check us out over there. Patreon.com slash co-main event. Sign up to join the team. 
Uh, as for right now, thanks for listening, everybody. We're done here. We are out. <laughs>